Peter Morris writes in his History of Baseball Groundskeeping that dirt is now a rare sight in urban areas, and unless embellished by a baseball game, it looks a bit forlorn, as though it somehow senses that someone might decide that a parking lot would go nicely in its place. That's a funny sentence to read here in Hartford, where we just did the exact opposite, where we just turned a sea of parking lots into a baseball field, surrounded by a baseball stadium, surrounded by a sea of parking lots. But it's funny, too, to think of here. I'm standing on another dirt and grass field in Hartford, and this one's been here entirely unpaved since at least the 1860s. This field is known as the Baseball Garden, and it's nestled into this one block. Behind me is Willis Street. Out across the field is a big, ornate brownstone building, the Caldwell Colt Memorial House. To my left is the Church of the Good Shepherd, a Gothic temple that's been here since 1869. It's called the Baseball Garden because Major League Baseball was once played here, because Hartford's Major League Baseball team played here. In 1876, the first year of the National League, this was the site of the Hartford Baseball Grounds, home of the Hartford Dark Blues. And standing here kind of where home plate would have been, looking out into the same clearing that hitters like Live Oak Taylor or Lip Pike would have, I can picture that some of these trees might have been here when Mark Twain came to the games. I can imagine the sounds of fastballs and flyballs and foul balls echoing off the church's stone facade. That was the beginning of Hartford's long history of professional baseball, a history that seemed like it had ended some 65 seasons ago. But it turns out it hadn't. From WNPR, this is the second first season, a behind-the-scenes podcast about the making of a baseball team on a year-long do-over. I'm Jonathan McNichol, and I want to get this spoiler out of the way right at the top here. Hartford has baseball. The Yard Goats have a ballpark, and the ballpark, after a 372-day delay, has a fully functional baseball field where real, live, professional baseball games are actually played. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Dunkin' Donuts Park. Home of the 2017 Hartford Yard Goats. Thank you. Dunkin' Donuts Park officially opened on Thursday, April 13th with a sold-out, standing-room-only crowd reported at 6,850 people and a 7-2 Yard Goats loss to the New Hampshire Fisher Cats. But the Tuesday before the park opened for real, it had its soft opening, a kind of dress rehearsal game, a college baseball game, that the stadium staff used to sort of beta test everything before opening day. The scoreboards got used for real for the first time. The bathrooms got used for real for the first time. The nacho cheese melters got to melt something like actual cheese. And the playing field got to see something like actual game action. Yeah, and we were anxious. I went and talked to Kyle Calhoun, who is the turf manager, the head groundskeeper, that is, at Dunkin' Donuts Park before the soft opening game. So now this is the first game. So, of course, you know we're, we're anxious to see how it plays. Calhoun is, as far as I can tell, the one person involved with the year-long delay in building the stadium, who was actually happy about it. Uh, we had the season canceled, so we had a full year for the field to grow in, which I always say is the only benefit to this um, unfortunate situation, is the field had a, had a chance to, to root. In John McPhee's 1968 profile of the head groundskeeper at Wimbledon, he wrote that Mr. Twynham regards each blade of grass as an individual, with its own needs, its own destiny, and its own right to grow on this blessed piece of lawn. Kyle Calhoun strikes me as more laid back than that. He's from Ohio, but I would have believed him if he'd told me he's from the West Coast. He seems like the kind of guy who'd spend a lot of the off-season surfing, 
if you weren't so busy taking care of an empty baseball field instead. Calhoun maybe doesn't imbue each individual blade of grass with its own needs and destiny, but he's still pretty specific about his blessed piece of lawn. We cut every day. We keep the infield about seven eighths, and we keep the outfield at an inch. Every day they mow so that every day the field is the same as it was the day before, down to the eighth of an inch. It doesn't necessarily need to be mowed every day, but it's just for the players to have that same roll, to have the same hop. We just want to keep that cut at the exact same height for every game. And it's not just a consistency of length that they try to mow to either. I don't like crisscrossing too many lines. It just doesn't uh, help the playability of the ball as it's coming towards the outfield. Because it's thought that too many competing angles cut into the grass cause the ball to snake as it bounces or rolls. I try to keep the pattern pretty uh, straightforward. They mow the lawn and they water the lawn and they drain the lawn. There's more than a mile of piping under the field for irrigation and drainage. But it's not just the grass. It's the dirt, too. A corkboard-like consistency is what we look for. Cleat in, cleat out. We don't want any chunking when the players are running. Well, I shouldn't say dirt. The infield that the yard guts play on, I guess, is more complicated than just dirt. It's an engineered soil, and it's uh, 60% sand, 20% clay, and 20% silt. But so they water and drain the grass, and they water and drain the engineered soil, too. It's, it's a fine line. Uh, too dry, it's going to chunk out. Too wet, you're, it's going to be muddy. Uh, it's trying to find that right consistency, and we're, we're going to be here tonight watching to make sure that we have it. And they mow the grass, and they rake the soil. I just take a rake, and I, I'll walk it over and just try to open up that top quarter-inch layer just to um, kind of take out all the footprints. Just to try to take out all the footprints. This is the main thing I notice watching Calhoun and his full-time assistant and their seven-man, and they're all men, by the way, their seven-man game day staff work before and after the game. They're basically making a brand new baseball field every day. They cut the grass to the same length it was yesterday. They rake the footprints out of the infield dirt. We're constantly just adding moisture to it. They repair the whole home plate area so it looks like it's never been used before. They're going to make a hole basically where they land and where they take off. Uh, They rebuild the pitcher's mound so it's like no one's ever pitched on it before. You add the clay, tamp it in, uh, you try to scratch it out, make sure you get... They rake and sweep and blow any clay and soil out of the grass around the baselines and the infield. And then we'll take a larger tamp to try to even it out. They spray paint home plate white before each game. And then the next day we'll actually come back with a vibrating tamp to try to smooth it all out again. I asked Calhoun in the afternoon about repainting the foul lines in the batter's boxes. And I didn't really appreciate what he told me at the time. Well, at the end of the night, we'll basically pick up all the foul lines and start fresh the next day. I didn't understand what he meant by, we'll basically pick up all the foul lines, until after the game, when I saw that they actually scoop out any soil that has any paint on it and leave behind only fresh, clean dirt. Yes, fresh, clean dirt that can be painted anew tomorrow. This is the Sporting News in 1893, describing Pittsburgh's then-groundskeeper's daily routine. Every day the club is home, the ground is rolled, and the field is thoroughly sprinkled with water. Then the groundkeeper goes over the entire infield with a rake and levels the ground, fills up all the ground, and every little defect is looked after. Then the ground is rolled again. After the work has all been attended to, the pitcher and batter's box is chalked. Then the baselines, the coachers, and the outside boundary lines are all lined with chalk. Peter Morris is the author of Level Playing Fields, a book about how groundskeeping has shaped baseball. I asked him, based on that description from the 1890s, if maintaining a field has really changed all that much in all this time. Yeah, I mean, the basic tasks of groundkeeping haven't changed that much. So obviously some of the nice mowers that you see today 
uh, you obviously didn't see in the 19th century. I mean, it was a really difficult thing just to get a field sort of remotely playable. Morris makes the point, actually, that a lot of the very design of the baseball field as we know it, and then the very design of baseball as we know it, was originally dictated by the fields that were available and the groundskeeping that was possible. Baseball was kind of designed so that you could sort of portion off the outfield and say, okay, the outfielders can fend for themselves, and if if there's a few stumps out there, then that's their problem, and they'll have to deal with it. And the infield needed to be a little more cared for. But that meant you could just put it, take a 90-foot square area and designate that as the infield. Those words infield and outfield actually come from farming. Farmers tended much more closely to their infields and let their outfields grow a bit more wild. One of the things that you see today, you know, that, that you don't really think about now is, is outfielders will run and as they're running, they're looking at the ball the whole time. And you'll say, don't take your eyes off the ball. But I mean, the 19th century, you know, that would have been terrible advice because if you're running in the outfield and you're just looking at the ball, you're, you're going to hit a, a stump or something and fall flat on your face. But so this is why foul territory exists. It's why there are home runs if you hit the ball beyond the boundary of the outfield. All those areas are areas that groundskeepers didn't have to keep. And actually, groundskeeping is why the pitcher's mound exists, too. So the mound came out of, uh, the mound was just a defensive mechanism at first against rain. And it wasn't, you know, the, uh, the idea wasn't that the pitcher should, ought to be higher up than the batter, but just that, you know, the pitcher needed to have, needed not to get too much mud in his cleats. And it may just be that the pitcher's mound was invented in Hartford, too. This is the Trenton Times in 1885. When the Trenton team reached the Hartford ground yesterday, they found five men with sponges hard at work on the diamond, and the pitcher was mounted on a pile of sawdust. The Trenton team came to play at the Hartford ground in 1885, but that wasn't THE Hartford baseball grounds, the ones on Willis Street. THE Hartford baseball grounds were the city's baseball park back in the 1870s, Back when, whether hardly anybody knows about it now or not, Hartford had a major league baseball team, the Hartford Dark Blues. That's absolutely true. It's true that they had a major league team, and it's true that hardly anybody knows about it. David Arcidiacono is the author of Major League Baseball in Gilded Age, Connecticut. Connecticut, halfway between New York and Boston, right? Today, Connecticut's location between those two cities really hurts them, right, as far as getting a major league team. Back then, in the 1870s, with transportation being what it was, it was an eight-hour train ride from Boston to New York. And so in 1876, when the National League formed... It's today's National League. It's the same National League that, you know, the New York Mets play in. And the Chicago Cubs and the L.A. Dodgers and the Colorado Rockies. It started in 1876, and Hartford was a charter member. Some of the great names of early baseball played here. Billy Barney and Bill Boyd, Fancy O'Neill and Patty Quinn, Cherokee Fisher and Candy Cummings. By far the, the biggest name, as far as a player that came through Hartford during this major league time, right, was uh, Candy Cummings. Arthur Candy Cummings was renowned uh, as one of the first curveball pitchers. Some people said he invented it. He didn't invent it. Nobody knows who invented the curveball, but he certainly was the first pitcher to make. uh, He threw it very, very often, and he was very successful with it. So successful he's in the Baseball Hall of Fame. George Schaefer played some outfield here and they called him Orator Schaefer, I guess because he talked a lot. Bob Ferguson was the manager and the third baseman. Everyone loved Bob Ferguson. In fact, a Hartford merchant started his own brand of cigars called Captain Bob in honor of Bob Ferguson. And a guy named Tommy Barlow played for the Dark Blues. He was famous for possibly being the inventor of the bunt. He would get up to bat with a a two-foot-long bat and try to lay down a bunt. They mocked him all the time. 
but he was very effective with it. Barlow hit 297 here as the first guy regularly deploying the derided bunt. Well, it was viewed as unmanly. Like, who's going to get up there and, and not take a big swing at the ball? Why, why are you up there just trying to lay it down in, in between the pitcher and the catcher? Uh, they called it Barlow's Dodo. The game was full of firsts at that time, and the Dark Blues were a part of lots of them. They had the National League's first no-hitter thrown against them. They had the National League's first triple play turned against them. Hartford center fielder Jack Remsen hit the first-ever leadoff home run. And in September of 1876, after a rainout, Hartford was host to the first-ever doubleheader. Candy Cummins pitched both ends of that doubleheader. First time a pitcher had ever done that, obviously. Uh, so, you know, Hartford definitely... Uh, was a team of firsts in, in the National League. But after the 1876 season, the team packed up and moved to Brooklyn, and they were the first team to do that, too, and the only team to do it for 80 years until the Brooklyn Dodgers moved to Los Angeles in 1957. But so the Hartford Dark Blues moved to Brooklyn and became the Brooklyn Hartfords. Right, a little oxymoronic, the Brooklyn Hartfords, but they maintained the Hartford name mostly to draw on uh, the good reputation that the Hartford team had. A Hartford baseball team that doesn't play any of its games in Hartford. That seems familiar, doesn't it? But starting that next year, in 1877, and for most of the next 75 years, Hartford still had professional baseball teams. Hartford had minor league baseball teams. Teams like the Hartford Babies and the Hartford Bluebirds and the Hartford Bees. There were the Hartford Laurels and, probably my favorite, the Hartford Wooden Nutmegs. But the best-known teams from the first half of the 20th century were the Hartford Senators and the Hartford Chiefs. Uh, Lou Gehrig played on that team. Under an assumed name, Henry Lewis. The Yankees were kind of hiding him. Hall of Famer Warren Spahn pitched here. Hank Greenberg, right, another Major League Hall of Famer. Joe Torre's brother Frank Torre played for the Chiefs in the 50s. So those are some big names that were playing down in uh, what was called Clarkin Field, which later became Buckley Field down on Hammer Street. Looking back at those old rosters, there aren't a lot of guys who played in Hartford in the 1930s and 40s and early 50s who are still alive. But one guy who is still alive had maybe the best minor league season anyone's ever had in Hartford. Gene Conley turns 87 years old this year, and in 1951, pitching for the Hartford Chiefs in their second-to-last season, he went 20-9 and and threw nine shutouts and won minor league player of the year, the only player from any of Hartford's teams ever to do that. He lives in Massachusetts with his wife, Catherine, who he's been married to for 66 years. I called him up on a Saturday afternoon a few weeks ago and asked him if he'd help me try to tell the story of pro baseball in Hartford, the last time it was here, going on 70 years ago. Sure, I'll be glad to help you a little bit. Okay, excellent. Um, if I can remember that far. <laughs> Conley's one season in Hartford in 1951 was his first season as a professional athlete. He and Catherine had just gotten married that spring, and he had just turned 20 years old. I just turned 20, and I didn't know what I was getting into, to tell you the truth. But it was, Tommy Holmes had just After pitching retired. in Hartford, Conley, who was a 6-foot, 8-inch pitcher at a time when there weren't a lot of 6-foot, 8-inch pitchers, played 11 seasons in the majors and 6 seasons of basketball in the NBA. He's one of only two people who've ever won championships in more than one of America's four major sports. He won the World Series with the Milwaukee Braves in 1957, and he won three NBA championships with the Boston Celtics. But he still remembers guys he played with in Hartford in 1951, and which ones made it to the majors and which ones didn't. There was a guy named Jack Daniels, played outfield, and I think the Braves took him up for a part-time in 1952. I asked Conley what he remembered about the night he won his 20th game, a milestone for a pitcher, and probably a big part of how he won Player of the Year. 
I remember a couple of things happened. I was I was having a good, real good year, and uh, at that time I was we were only making about oh two or three hundred dollars a month, you know. <laughs> and uh, I was going for my twentieth win at the end of the season there, and they they had a, a colony night for me. And uh, about the seventh inning, my wife was pregnant at the time. And she didn't want to go out on the field, but they wanted us to go out on the field, and it was during the seventh inning stretch. And I had a, a, a zero to zero ball game going for my 20th win on my night. And there they bring her out there and give us a suitcase and some other little gift, <laughs> <laughs> you know, for having a good year. Right. And uh, <clears throat> then they, they announced they were going to pass the hat around the stands. And they must have had about, oh, I don't know. So I had a pretty good crowd that night. And they started passing the hat around. And uh, we come up with a little over $600. <laughs> there I was out there trying to win a ball game. <laughs> and they're passing the hat around to get me some money. You won the game, though, too, as I understand. Yeah, we won the game. We, I got a shutout, and they got the money. Took it, took it home. Shoot, that was, that was two months' pay. <laughs> that was the 1951 season. But in 1952, on September 7th, 1952, the Hartford Chiefs... They played a doubleheader on the last day of the season. They swept the doubleheader, and that was the last time professional baseball was played in Hartford. Over the 79 seasons from 1874 through 1952, Hartford had a professional baseball team for all but 13 of them. But after 1952... For 23,594 days, starting on September 7, 1952, Hartford has been without a team of its own. Until now. Playability-wise, it was fine, but there were a lot of extra pregame ceremonies, but it held up well. I talked to Kyle Calhoun again to check in on the field after the Yard Goats' first six home games, of which they lost the first five in a row. Of course, you want them to uh, play well on your field, but at the same time, the other team was hitting well and fielding well, and uh, it plays the same for both teams. After the losing streak, there was a rainout, and then the Yard Goats got their first ever home win, a one to nothing shutout. Overall, played well. I think we got a lot of compliments from the players, and uh, I was happy with the first homestand. In Peter Morris's book, Level Playing Fields, he writes about how the figurative elements of baseball have replaced the literal ones, how we start to see it as this poetic, abstract thing, rather than a simple, straightforward game played on simple, straightforward fields. As we take our kids to ball games and we try to explain baseball, we, you know, we explain all the nuances of it, and, and they look and they just see a bunch of adults playing in the dirt. And, you know, in a sense, that's what it is. You can come up with lots of fancy metaphors for baseball, and you can come up with all kinds of, you know, uh, complicated explanations. But, you know, really, it, it's still, in the end, it's just a game in which uh, adults who have supposedly grown up and moved on to better things are, you know, just playing in the dirt. Or just playing in the engineered soil blend, anyway. Coming up on the second first season. Brian McMahon, who was a top 100 prospect. And there's real power there. You know, he's a guy that can hit home runs. And he can hit home runs to all fields. He's got power to all fields. He's going to be a guy that can be in the middle of the lineup and be a fun guy to watch. It's minor leagues. It's a player development. Do I worry about developing players? That's what I worry about. I don't worry about wins and losses. Reportedly, and, and a few newspapers reported it, a medical student at Hartford Hospital, to play a, a joke on Mark Twain, actually took one of his case studies, a small cadaver, and left it on the uh, porch at the Mark Twain house on Farmington Avenue. This episode of the second first season was edited by Katie Tolarski and Jeff Cohen. 
Heather Brandon is the digital editor. Katie Talarski is the executive producer. Thanks to Tucker Ives, David Eskenazi at Sports Press Northwest, Mark Blau at the State of Washington Sports Hall of Fame, and Cassidy Lent at the Giamatti Research Center at the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Lydia Brown was our 19th century narrator, and our theme song is by the great Jim Chapdelaine. You can find the second first season on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. We're on the web at wmpr.org slash secondfirst. You can find me on Twitter at McNicholPants. The second first season is a production of WNPR. I'm Jonathan McNichol.